In this episode, I am once again joined by Anthony Metivier, author and internationally renowned memory expert. Anthony shares his most recent findings from his personal meditation practice of reciting sacred Sanskrit texts, including using memorization and recitation to pacify obsessive thinking, the pros and cons of guru and deity devotion, and his experiments with deliberately reducing his practice volume and observing the mindlessness and habitual tendencies that arose as a consequence. Anthony discusses how to enter into altered states of consciousness through recitation of memorized texts, why he is now memorizing Shakespeare instead of more Sanskrit, and why it is essential to include the body in meditation and other mental feats. Anthony also discusses what can be learned from the examples of figures such as Sherlock Holmes, Giordano Bruno, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, as well as discussing his latest book, Flyboy, a crime novel in which the detective protagonist uses specialist memory techniques to track down a serial killer. So without further ado, Anthony Mativier. Anthony Mativier, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And today we're going to talk about your new book, Flyboy. After years working his beat under dreary skies, early cognitive decline is starting to drag on Detective David Williams. When a serial killer, the police nickname Flyboy, learns of Williams' checkered past, the unusual crime scene signatures become increasingly cryptic, leading Williams to one final encounter with a man who murdered his family two decades ago. This is a detective story, the first, I believe, in what, what looks to be a series, and mm. weaving. Uh, it's not just a crime story, it's actually a memory technique guide also. In fact, the detective is, is working on his memories to, to fight off his cognitive decline. He has a blind memory master called Jerome who mentors him and so on. And that becomes extremely crucial to the story. So the memory techniques that you teach in other nonfiction contexts are shown in full force here. Very, it's very fascinating indeed. Um, but first of all, so let's talk about that. But first of all, I'd like to ask you, are there any updates on your memory slash spiritual practice? Last time we discussed your life story, and we also discussed the way in which you uh, memorize texts like the Ribu Gita, for example, as you know, part of your spiritual practice. I wonder if there's any updates or uh, any new discoveries since we last spoke in that area. Yeah, well, I mean, it just gets wilder and more interesting. and. I mean, one update that might be interesting to you is we were talking the last time and I said, you know, I would, I would be, you know, the last person who would ever want to take a break from this daily meditation routine that I wouldn't even want to experiment with it. I think I said, but then I'm just one of those people. I get an idea in my head and I can't let it go. And so I, I ran an experiment to see what it would be like if I actually dropped this routine, which in some sense was helpful with flyboy because i'm writing about a person who needs to learn how to memorize so i didn't intend to do method acting for flyboy but it sort of ended up having that kind of character in a sense but it was very interesting to actually i never fully dropped it so it's uh not a fair test but i did sort of reduce it and for about four months and it was just very, very interesting to feel like certain effects of this, what I would call procedural memory, still like running the program at a certain level. And then seeing the effects of, of mindlessness sort of come back uh, to a certain extent. And on one level, it's like I never quite have recovered exactly the the train that i was on but then on another it's just a completely different trip and just as fulfilling i imagine uh, as anything else although that's kind of fueled by the philosophical way that i think about it uh, but in terms of the, the actual practice i mean i'm still doing the majority of the sanskrit uh, i've i've sort of barely do song celestial anymore i never was particularly attracted to it and it was almost like that was the one I was forcing myself to do. But the other three pieces I, I still recite regularly now. And the memorization, I'm not memorizing any new Sanskrit presently, but I'm memorizing Shakespeare and just pushing in uh, different things that that are just non 
non-spiritual. I memorized a little bit of uh, of uh, the Atma Bodha, and I tried to uh, do it a different way. I set up a memory palace that has all the stations numbered so I can memorize it out of order and just know this is the 50th verse. Uh, which starts with, uh, you know, and it's just like, yeah, cool. Uh, and, and that's, that's an interesting project to like dip into once in a while, but Shakespeare just seems more interesting lately and just other things, uh, to, to, to memorize, but I still sit and do the recitation and I love to sit now in the sun, which, uh, we've got a nice little back back patio there and do the vitamin D, uh, absorption. But uh, I, I still think of this. I use the Sanskrit like almost, I don't know how many times a day. I don't count it, but it just comes comes in and it's a beautiful alternative to thinking. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it a great deal, uh, even though it is thinking. It's like thinking by other means. I wonder if you might explain some of that in a little bit more detail. Perhaps you could, just for those who haven't seen the first episode, a couple of lines summary of what it is that you'd stopped doing. And then you oh, right, think there is some sort of procedural <laughs> memory momentum and then some degree of um, mindlessness that you were mindful of and and then and so on. So perhaps you could explain a bit more of that. Yes. So, so sorry if I was coded there. Um, the way that I got into all of this uh, memorizing of Sanskrit is. Part of what was attractive to me is that, you know, the uh, I've I'd long known about the noisy mind and blah, blah, blah in your mind. And it's just like this terrible beast of unwanted thoughts, which I think is a procedural memory thing. So procedural memory is your ability to just get on a bike and ride, even if you haven't done it for months and months. It's sort of like a skill that happens to you as much as you willfully drive it. So. I just was a terrible sufferer of all kinds of things. Like if I was having an argument or something, obsessively go over this argument 45 days, not not that long, but you know, it just felt like forever and ever and ever. And then I would run through the various things and oh, if I would have said this and then like all these other sort of things and oh, but if I said it that way, it, it's just really fantasizing at some level of all possible better arguments. So my ego could, could feel... Uh, uh, whatever it was looking for. So then memorizing Sanskrit as this alternative, I mean, Gary Weber in Evolving Beyond Thought calls it up updating the brain software. And so he gives, uh, in, in in Evolving Beyond Thought, he gives an extract that he's combed out of the Ribhu Gita. And I've read the whole Ribhu Gita and it's kind of cool because I read it after I memorized it. And then I just saw these lines and I was like, good choice, good choice. Anyway, it's a, it's sort of a, a, a compilation in the same way that Song Celestial is a something that someone combed out of uh, Bhagavad Gita. So memorizing that and then starting when I noticed this obsessive thinking and then firing off the Ribhu Gita that I memorized instead was this wonderful alternative because the Ribhu Gita has cooked into it these really funny statements. Like one of them is that a, a real thought is as rare as a rabbit with horns, which is just funny to uh, even think about now. And uh, I mean, I often don't think about what the English means when I'm doing the Chittameva stuff, but um, it's still this alternative. So it's it's uh, it's like the pharmacon principle in uh, in ancient Greece. The cure contains the poison and the poison contains the cure. So it's not like chanting Sanskrit is uh, somehow removing all of life's miseries, and it sometimes can be itself a distraction. But uh, nonetheless, it's just this wonderful alternative. And because that's become procedural, it almost just starts to happen to me. So if I'm worrying about something or I have that old habit come up, just as easily now, and especially because I've linked it with like mudras and stuff like this. So it's even, it's quite physical. Uh, I'll just start doing this as an alternative. And it's it's great. It's wonderful. Especially when I have so many ideas. I mean, I was talking to my mom yesterday and she was like, oh yeah, the, the ideas are the hard part. And I said, oh, I wish they were there. That's the easy part. It's the, it's the execution. And I wish I could shut off the ideas and maybe just have one idea for once uh, instead of, instead of so many. So that's what, and that, that practice also helps with just turning off the tap of so many ideas. And then you notice that 
taking a break from that that formal practice of that recitation and memorization still it was in your procedural memory and it would it would come through so what about this mindlessness what did you notice there specifically well like the tendencies sort of came back the hmm. and it can be that dealing with with the flyboy manuscript at that time was part of it because it, like i say I was, there's no intention to do method acting but there there sort of was that thing i mean i went through that book a, too many times uh in order to have a, a shot at making it good and um that guy has ptsd and he he has uh i mean i didn't even go over the top the way that that I guess I could have, but I'm not Will Self. <laughs> he he could have written it probably better with the actual verisimilitude to what that might have looked like. Uh, but yeah, I just started to have the same kind of thing where this is rational anger over stuff, uh, which you know is is an interesting experience to have when you're more observant about it. But it's not pleasant, uh, and so still there's this underlying current it 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 is ocean like in a sense this chanting rhythm especially since the the chants that i've memorized are are cyclical uh in some sense uh, they they weave into into one another and i think weber was was genius in how that he put together the ribhu gita extract especially with the capping verses because the capping verses themselves can be their own little piece you can just dive right into that stuff uh and the way it's put together is um cyclical unto itself um but upadeza sharam is also kind of cyclical and the way i've heard it sung they also repeat the end verse as if it was a capping verse and so it's 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 got an engine sort of so to speak when you when you memorize it an engine plus an algorithm so once you get it started you almost don't feel like you're done until that you you actually finish it. And then when you get to the end, it's already got its own repetition or impulse to repetition built into it. And it's it's poetry in that in that sense. It, it it's catchy. So it's it's it stays. It has staying power in the same way that learning to ride a bike has staying power. Just get on and do it. <laughs> yes. And that, of course, the way of using Sanskrit or relating to Sanskrit in the way that you've done is part of the genius of that of that language and part of the way it has been used for so long and part of the architecture of it and the way those sorts of um, texts are composed they're composed with that with that in mind and perhaps even refined through that process would you would you agree with that and that you discover that sort of thing as you as you work more closely with it well, I certainly heard and read people say that, you know, Sanskrit was invented as this mental technology precisely for these reasons. I don't know. I mean, I, I have no problem imagining ancient people filled with anxieties. And I mean, if you just look at the Bible. I mean, that's what the story of Noah is. It's just this society gone mad with lust and avarice and every kind of uh, uh dysfunction that you could have to the point that god's gonna you know th throw throw the ocean on top of them and so forth so you can you can imagine ancient people having some some issues and maybe cooking up a, a technology like a language however i don't think chomsky is gonna go along with that story <laughs> in terms of how languages develop and so forth that you know someone got out the forge and was like let's build this language that solves our mental problems but who knows it did uh, it doesn't have to be known necessarily in order for us to have that be a useful kind of mental frame for thinking about, well, there are properties here. Uh, and, you know, the, these are questions that that I've had about how memory techniques work because the placement of uh, the major system, for example, what we use to memorize numbers, it has this sort of progress through the mouth or mountain um, physical placement in the mouth. So what that means is to memorize numbers, we use uh, consonants linked to the numbers. So zero will be a soft S, Z, or C, or soft C, sorry, not a soft S. Uh, one will be a T or D, two is an N, et cetera. But just stopping there, soft C, S, Z, they're all in the same part of the mouth. And those are linked to zero. T and D for one, you know, T and D, duh, duh, they, they're 
you, you're using the same parts of your mouth and it goes through ch, j, sh for six to give another example. Um, so there's something to that. And that major system comes from the katapayadi, which is an ancient Indian structure. And it also has this link in the mouth to where the sounds are made. And it can well be that through experimentation, these people with thousands of hours on their hands to sit around <laughs> playing with their mouths have come up with this idea that uh, these particular sounds sounded in this way, trigger off points in the brain, which is, I mean, people still get acupuncture to this day, which is premised on a similar principle that press here and this effect happens some of the time. Uh, so yeah, it's possible that Sanskrit, had, I mean, one of the funniest snotty criticisms I ever got from my TEDx talk was two words, which was magic Sanskrit. <laughs> you know, it was, it was very dismissive. And I just thought I got to write a book one day that has that title or that chapter or something, because that, that's exactly right. <laughs> but is it right for some mystical reason? I have no idea. Yes. Well, it's certainly positive, isn't it? Um, and mm. uh, what I had in mind was the use of memorization and recitation of these sorts of works. That seems to be quite core to the way in which Sanskrit has been used and related to throughout time. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think it could be anything. Uh, so I'm not, I love the idea that Sanskrit is magic, but mm. it tongue in cheek and having fun. But I can tell you that I can get myself into a state just by going and reciting the Ursanata by Kurt Schwitters, right? So that's just nonsense verse. <laughs> like this is just <laughs> it doesn't have to be sanskrit that's pretty delightful too you know uh, uh sound poetry all, all all kinds of stuff you could go and be an actor and like really pound out whatever it is that you, you you're doing ideally something very vigorous play king lear or something like that like you're going to have an experience for sure even just the the breath work and what that does to to your brain when you're changing the flow yeah you're gonna have states i mean people talk about all kinds of mystical states and i'm like yeah i've had mystical states too but i often think i'm doing a lot of heavy stuff with my voice and i'm getting probably less oxygen here while i'm doing it it feels like more but it, it's probably less or it's concentrated blasts of oxygen that's going to change your state for sure plus your your brain is encased in a skull and like you can go to a church and listen to a, a giant organ or you can sit there and make sounds either way you're resonating all kinds of tiny little bones in your ear that send oscillations you know that wave all kinds of cellular structures which is not to be a materialist but if materialism is real that's a pretty good explanation for why your, your why your state changes, and all the more so if you're adding breathing as you're resonating your own eardrums from within your own skull. Plus, if you do this, which I like to do when I uh, am doing my chanting and all this meditating stuff, this is uh, in studies shown to mess with the, what they call the orientation association area of the brain, which may or may not explain the feeling of oneness and I love the feeling of oneness. It's like, wow, the whole universe, I'm connected with it. We, you know, like it's cool. But I also love the scientific idea that that's happening because I've sloshed a bunch of stuff around in my brain and we can have both. We can have the picture of people who think that um, there's somehow some connection to be had with uh, connected things and we can be connected with the science story at the same time. Like, wh why not <laughs> just, just slosh it all in there and uh, pick your poison what, what you're going to do in terms of how you allow that to lead yourself through life and because it will almost certainly um, affect your morals and your ethics uh, in terms of, of what you say and, and, and how you treat others based on these states that you have I think could you say a little more about that uh, transfer from mystical states to moral moral behavior or speech well, i think you become a better person or you have the chance to become a better person when you have these uh experiences because there's tremendous 
contentment and you may then you know want others to feel that too so i I mean i think this is this is where evangelism comes from these people are having extraordinary experiences and they would love for others to have it because they've been freed from either immediate suffering or now they have some freedom from suffering and they have the image of more freedom from suffering in the future if they do more of this thing so humans have this tendency to want to spread the good news that helps the species and to try to shut down the threats and so i think if you are able to get more pictures in your head and think about it both rationally and irrationally it may guide that you're not evangelizing too much let's say uh, or you 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 use the available tools of a variety of philosophies to help develop a moral compass that reminds you that you don't know what any of this is and and neither does anybody else you know and uh i think i mentioned this the last time we talked that i think one of the greatest things i ever heard from shinzen young was you know that feeling that you have that you're connected to this, that, or this or that is happening or whatever, that's when inquiry really doubles down. You know, that's when you really start to inquire because that certainty is certain of what, you know? So uh, I think that can be a great thing. Uh, and it's certainly been important to me because I get emails all the time um, where people either hear what I said or they read part of what I've said, et cetera, and not the end of the victorious mind where I go on and on about not building reliances to a teacher, et cetera. Like definitely have teachers, but don't um, turn them into, into what they aren't because uh, they usually aren't uh, those things, uh, but they don't read that. And then I don't know exactly what to do about it, but I usually just say, well, if you read the end of the book, you'll see that I'm not really offering the, the answers in, in this way, but uh I think that's very important because it would be all too easy for me to say, well, you know, if you just memorize all this magic Sanskrit and then you pivot like this, you'll be free from suffering for forever and ever. Amen. You know, <laughs> but I, I don't know that to be the case. Uh, and I don't think anybody else does either, but there's certainly lots of useful stuff to be learned from people who think that they do. Like Gary Weber. Yeah. And I think he cuts that line as, as well as one could expect of, you know, saying, don't rebuild the teacher's journey. It's not possible. It's not, it's just not what this is about. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people just don't read between the lines. He says quite clearly, when I'm hungry and when I'm tired, thoughts will come back, you know, and he differentiates between planning thoughts. How does Gary Weber get to the bathroom? Like, oh, <laughs> whatever, um, you know, and this obsessive self-referential inner narrative. So, uh, and, you know, I work with clients, uh, for memory training and stuff like that. They create pictures of me in my head that I have to correct. It would be so beneficial for me to let those myths and stories go, but I correct them every time they come up because, you know, there's a guy, he said, I was just talking to you, you know, in this hour and you cited 45 books in eight different languages. And I said, are you serious? Like, did you count? Is it, was it really 45 books? Was it really eight languages? Like it probably was that I spoke a couple of different languages and I did cite a bunch of books, but it wasn't that many. And it's not that many languages. I don't speak eight languages, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, a it's, a and you see the button or sorry, you see the, the pin go in the balloon and you see the balloon deflate and you see the pain, but mm. uh, I think it's necessary. And I, I see people, people ask me about to answer the, the, the mystery of Gary Weber. And I just said, well, why are you asking me? <laughs> like, and then I'll, I'll, I'll just say though, but when I read his books, I read loud and clear the parts where he says, tired, hungry, thoughts come back, which totally makes sense. Um, and then he, the distinguishing between what, when we talk about thoughts, what kind of thoughts are we talking about? And I think he's quite clear, like, he makes a special acronym, S-R-I-N. I don't know if it's his acronym or not, but self-referential inner narrative. And that's that's one of the most useful things in in what he put together there was just not just happiness beyond thought, but happiness beyond thoughts of a specific kind. So 
anyway, that's I think that's why teachers exist is to put the brakes on things and uh, say, okay, let's do some textual analysis here, even if it's a simple book. Let's let's see what is it really saying, and how is like we know just to skip off into a tangent here. We know that there are values. There there are good studies of of like deity formation, the image of, of a deity or a guru, and this actually helps people to to have particular outcomes. But we always have to think about that that pharmacon concept. What's the cure? What's the poison in the cure? What's the cure in the poison? And um, can we can we sort of mediate and moderate these things so we have the best of all possible worlds? Because I have myself had the image of Gary Weber as someone who he was not, which is what I talk about at the end of Victoria's Mind. I wanted to keep obsessively asking him these questions, but then I realized that's missing the point that he's that's missing the gift that he's giving me. The image of the teacher is is within, and his actual journey is irrelevant in so far as he can't actually give you the journey. He could share technologies that he's discovered. He can extract from Ribu Gita this, but it's not a replacement to actually doing what I did, which is memorize his stuff and go and read the Ribu Gita. If I hadn't gone and read the whole book, the gift would have been diminished uh, in, in some sense. But who would have been doing the diminishing? <laughs> Me, not him. He's just some dude. The other thing I think that people miss about Gary Weber, sorry, Gary, if you're watching, but the dude's retired, right? Like, I'm sure, I'm sure you have fewer thoughts when you're retired. <laughs> or maybe you have more. I don't know. That's the whole point. Don't know. Never asked him. But like, if you read between the lines, it's just kind of uh, my image of a person who's happily retired. He's just doing like YouTube talks with somebody and uh, hanging out, chilling out, drinking tea. Like, yeah, fewer thoughts, I'm sure. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the image of the deity can certainly be helpful, but I th I feel, in my experience, it's even more helpful when you have this radical honesty of just another dude, like I'm sure uh, the Buddha was too. But um, somehow I get kicked, I get turned on by less romantic <laughs> images, which is probably why I write now detective novels because they're they're as far from romanticized as you can get. <laughs> I would like to talk about Flyboy, but first I'm I can't really let this go. Shakespeare. What have you been memorizing oh, Shakespeare? Can you talk a bit about that? You said that's been very interesting to you lately. Oh, yeah. So what is it? Doubt thou the stars burn. Doubt thou the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Newly memorized, so I might have missed a word there or something. And I certainly am not uh, Kenneth Branagh in my delivery. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why, but I just started to think that philosophy and ideas and spirituality and stuff like that, they're just not in those texts alone. Uh, let me see. Sonnet 59 really, really struck me. If there be nothing new, but that which is hath been before, how are our brains beguiled, right? Like just that opening, you can think about that for days. If there be nothing new, but that which is hath been before, how are our brains begotten? And then this, like, how are our, you know, like so genius to <laughs> to do that in the in the uh, in in the scan of of the thing. So, yeah, I just got really into into that. And plus, quite frankly, I find memorizing English way harder than Sanskrit. It's more challenging, and you know, part of that has to do with von Restorff effect, uh, which is uh, an effect that says that the more unusual something is the more it stands out. But how RR is almost the opposite. There's nothing like unusual about those three words. But yet somehow I find them very much more challenging to, to memorize that. Uh, and I have to power in some images uh, in order to in order to do that because they're these tiny incidental words, you know. Uh, so I just say, because I find a, in my practice a pleasure and a edification in the practice itself, regardless of what it is that that I'm memorizing, when there's a bit of a challenge or an additional challenge, that's really cool. But it doesn't have to be Shakespeare either. I mean, I'm memorizing playing cards, and this is a, a specific stack that I've memorized called the Mnemonica stack. And what I'm working on is not just that I memorize the stack, but that I know every number of every card from top to bottom. And... I haven't totally completed this yet, 
but uh, I'm getting good at the numbers. I know the order. Uh, the number is a little wobbly on a couple of them still. But then also knowing the distances. So how many cards, how, how far from uh, four of spades is four of diamonds, for example, uh, which allows you to do extraordinary card miracles. I can already do pretty decent ones, but I mean, to go to that level where you're frying your own brain in real time is, is really comes down to knowing that four of spades is X number of cards away from four of diamonds and knowing that for every card in every suit. Uh, wow. It, it's a great mental exercise. It feels amazing to navigate through a deck. Um, and it has similar edification and, and, and so forth as just sitting around chanting Sanskrit. So Shakespeare cards, it's all good. Uh, it's, 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 I don't know if you ever heard of, uh, Harry Kinney. No. So Harry Kinney, he was, uh, an artist who like in vaudeville and their, the twenties and so forth, they used to have these entertaining people who would come out and there was a, a sort of a genre of people who could do like five things at the same time. And Harry Kinney was one of these guys, you'd hang him upside down. He would be writing Shakespeare backwards with one hand. People would be shouting numbers from the audience and he'd be writing them forwards with the other hand. And then he would be reciting, I don't know, uh, the telephone book or something that he'd memorize uh, if there was not, that's not a good example, but whatever, like just weird variations like this. There was, there was other people who would have extensions on their fingers and they would write 10 different things uh, with chalk like this. Not that many people, but uh, <laughs> they would do this. And I'm very fascinated with this idea of multiple mentality. And Harry Kinney wrote a book called Multiple Mentality, and he gave all these exercises and so uh, I think they've been very influential in, in magic, such as things like a memorized deck where you know all of these positions uh, and being able to do mental calculations while you're shuffling or appearing to shuffle, like very convincing shuffles, and um, they're not shuffled at all. And you're like remembering the names of your audience blah, 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 like just, and setting plot points. Cause a lot of good magic performances also set story elements that need to fire off at <laughs> Anyway, multiple mentality totally fascinates me. I'm not very, very good at it, but some of the exercises he gives are really fun and they have that similar effect, like doing the alphabet backwards, doing the alphabet, A, Z, B, Y, C, X, like mm. skipping back and forth. It's just so much fun in the brain. It's challenging though. Uh, so Shakespeare, is another uh, form of that to me. Uh, it's not just the beauty of the the poetry and the ideas in it, but it's also that kind of thing of practicing my cards, doing things like pinky counts, where you know you're counting cards like this uh, secretly. Usually, uh, <clears throat> you're talking, you're counting. Maybe you're reciting Shakespeare while you're counting down to the seventeenth card. You know what the seventeenth card is. <laughs> it's just like it's just so much fun, uh, and it's a great brain workout. Even if you can't manage it all yet, like I can't manage it all yet, but it's uh, it's the equivalent of uh, of um, whatever you call that gymnastics at, mm -hmm. at the gym for your body in some sense. An interesting thread in what you've been talking about is this somatic component. Um, you talked about mudras, you're talking about you know, these physical, you're talking about a feeling, etc. Of course, people, I think, think of these mental feats by definition as mental in the mind, the body's not so involved. Uh, but you, it seems you've referenced the body in several and bodily experience, as well as bod bodily anchors in, se in se several times so far. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect, the somatic aspect of both the process, but also perhaps of the reward? Yeah. Well, in my early uh, meditative practice, I think that's what I was missing was the body. I was just sitting there, Alan Watts, sit, just to sit kind of stuff. And I was missing that that physical part. And that's part of what I followed in the in the Weber books, because he's talking about these uh, asanas, I guess he calls them, um, which are just as simple as touching your toes in some sense, uh, but also uh, like a, a child's pose sort of thing. And I think that really switched on, on his uh, blog. He had, uh, he still has, I'm sure a, a citation about 
a study where they showed that that uh, men are most likely to not be attracted to the physical parts of of meditation which is probably what they most need in order to tip the scales towards more mindfulness or experiences of this that and the other thing and it totally makes sense i mean if we were going to do the materialist shtick if if the brain is connected to the vagus nerve and the digestion and the, the you know your gut is your second brain and all that sort of stuff the more you're moving things around getting the blood moving the digestion improves and so forth this feeling of like light that I have had switch on and still have, it's it seems to me totally as if it comes and goes and flows, not because of this meditative practice on its own, but because things are open and they're it, it, like it'll just all of a sudden come on as if I've taken acid or something and it's just like blooming all of a sudden. And I just think what's going on down here in the gut? Like what has opened up and to what extent has it been helped by the fact that I do uh, now a lot of core exercises um, and even the acceleration of it more core. Cause I've gotten into like animality stuff, you know um, still I, I've reduced lifting weights. I still lift a bit of weights, but doing these body things where you flip around and kick your feet up and stuff like that. And I think that that's just increased this feeling of edification and lightness and brightness and so forth, just simply because it's improving the circulation. So, yeah, I think I think the more one gets into into the body, you you would certainly ha have those feelings. And I often just just wonder, you know, oh, I'm I've created this mental image of all of these. This tradition that now I practice or I belong to or sort of, <laughs> I don't know what I do with it, sort of play around with it and recast it uh, in, in my own special version. Um, it, it, it seems to me that that so much of it is is really just deeply as uh, would be experiences I would I'd be having if I was an athlete, <laughs> you know, uh, or. or or Schwarzenegger or something like that. I mean, when you, when you look at Schwarzenegger and he, I mean, I don't know him, I've never met him. So I don't know what like normal day life is with him, but you often get these off the cuff sort of things that he's doing and he's riding his bike every day to the gym and all this stuff. Like, it just seems like if that isn't the picture of enlightenment, I don't know what it is this old dude who's just still physically fit. And throughout his career, there's all these interviews where he just seems like super happy being rich would probably be, be, be part of that as well. But, you know, um, again, not knowing the person, creating this deity image, uh, so to speak, uh, is part of what I'm doing here. But also just noticing the extreme physical care and, and, and so forth. And I don't know how much roids he did, et cetera. But nonetheless, there's this picture over lots and lots of time where to this day, he's making jokes about his protein shake what he's however old he is now and he's like look i put stops in here and, he's... <laughs> and that's how my blood absorbs protein <laughs> and it's just like yeah i could see if you're doing that you're, you'd be happier or more depressed depending but it seems to work for him and he just seems happy uh in, in so many ways so body for sure yes see, you have this um interesting way of of thinking and talking it networks different topics it seems and um thinks a little outside of one particular box we're talking about spirituality we're talking about the body and you're linking that in interesting ways Arnold Schwarzenegger. yeah i think about this sometimes hmm. i've no I, I i've noticed this kind of philosophical problem and it may be just a philosophical problem to me but it seems to me in the spiritual world, and I would love to like hang out with more things and go to these classes and all this sort of stuff. But I have the same problem with it that I had with poetry when I used to be involved in like spoken word in Toronto, for example. So in that world, I had to stop going. I couldn't, I couldn't be part of it because I would go to a, a, a reading and people would just be reading amazing, gorgeous arrangements of words as if they were Bach or something. Uh, with language. And then they would get together and have these conversations where they would be like, well, it's just such a shame that, that, uh, that Stephen King gets so much recognition when I'm clearly such a master of my craft. 
And I'm just thinking, you are a creative writing professor. And um, if you had craft, wouldn't you use that craft to spin gold out of it? I mean, wouldn't you just write one pot boiler if you were such a master of your craft to free yourself from this horrendous uh, life of a creative writing instructor who must live in slave morality by teaching the very thing that you cannot do? Like this must be... <laughs> This must be the most horrible experience, right? Now, I developed a theory that I called the theory of craft, which was spelt C-R-A-P-H-T, so that it had the word crap in it. And I vowed that I would never um, be involved in this again. And I would only only write to the extent that I could write a pot boiler that would have a shot, because I'm not going to sit there around criticizing Stephen King. I'm going to, I didn't think of it this way, but I'll make a diva image in my mind, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing and, and have a shot at it like that if I'm ever going to do it. Now, what does that have to do with spirituality? I think it's almost the same thing in the spiritual world because what I hear all the time is I couldn't possibly ever have anything that I do associated with money and then non-duality, non-duality, non-duality. I'm like, hold on a second. If non-duality is real, if there's no separation between you and the other, then what the heck are you doing pushing the money away? That's Jesus shtick in the tabernacle. You know, like if 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 non-duality is true, if there is no separation, then what is what what is this? And so I don't know. Like I have no um, separation between me and Schwarzenegger. I only know that I don't know him. You know, like I really don't know that guy. But I have this image of him, and he could be just as much a spiritual teacher as Gary Weber could be, etc as can be noticing these things of like, I could never be associated with money because that's just, if non-duality is real, well, then that's just another thing <laughs> in the mix, right? And there can't be any separation between me and that. Not that I think that there is non-duality, but it's a cool idea. And if you're going to play that, then that's the moral thing. That's the moral uh, sort of decision that it can give you is, you know, are you going to be the guy who criticizes it all and like sort of plays jester can you stop yourself from being that guy? Uh, and there are certainly like these these uh, Ed Whitea stand up comics who would, who who do similar <laughs> sorts of things. They point out all of this, and I don't know if the other people get it or not. But if 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 non duality is true, then the push away seems misguided at, at, at its base. But I also understand that you can't just gorge yourself on on everything. But then if non-duality is true, aren't you already gorged? Isn't this moment full and complete? Isn't it the case that you can't cut it? You can't burn it? You can't get it wet? Like all the stuff from the Bhagavad Gita, you know? So, you know, uh, I, I, I think that these avenues and channels and constant connections that I make, uh, they're just the way that I am and probably always have been. But it gets switched on a little bit more when I follow the philosophy of non-duality. Because of course, Schwarzenegger and all his wealth is my teacher. How could it not be? It's not separate from me. I can't, I can't release myself from it. It's in my procedural memory and it will be back. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've gone there with that worst of all possible puns. It had to be done. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about Flyboy. Not just a crime story. But as we discussed, uh, as you hinted at earlier, actually, your memory techniques are woven into the story in crucial ways um, and very instructive ways, actually, also. You made a comparison to Sherlock Holmes, uh, who is mm. another famous memory detect uh, detective who uses special memory techniques. But there's this distinction you made about Sherlock Holmes that you wanted to do slightly differently in Flyboy. So I'm wondering if you might talk a bit about what that is. And could you talk a bit about the book and uh, why did you wrote it? Yeah, well, I it just it's got like a gestation uh, story, which is partly my own stupidity and lack of humility uh, and lack of intelligence, really, because when I first started the memory techniques and for much of the decade that I've been teaching them, more than a decade, people were watching Sherlock. And they kept saying, oh, I found your website because I'm watching Sherlock. And I'm just like... <sighs> Like, oh my God, what is this? Like, just total missing the point. And 
I still don't like Sherlock. I mean, the original stories are cool, uh, but there's something that about the, especially the most recent series that just kind of, uh, well, I don't know. There's a je ne sais quoi that just never really fit with me. And I just missed this kind of opportunity to have some fun. <laughs> but what happened is in 2017, I was down in Sydney and I found this book called Empire of the Imagination about Gary Gygax, who started uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And then this sort of started this process of, of thinking because I'd always written stories and I wanted to create an alternative to the memory competitions because as much as I admire and am astonished and, you know, there's many scientific wonderful, valuable things to that I've already come out of studying the brains of memory competitors. I just don't get it. Like I've just, I've gone and done it, but I don't get a jet. I don't get jazzed out of it. So I wanted to create a world that I would get jazzed out of that is like competitively non-competitive, or you're purely competing with yourself, or you're just having fun without the edge of potentially being embarrassed and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years and I'd written Victorious Mind. I'm having like a kind of identity crisis because all these people are emailing me uh, about that book and the TEDx talk and they're they're hoisting these massive long uh, emails on me and I just don't know what is the right way to respond other than, you know, that's material for a, a licensed therapist kind of thing. And here's what helped me. Um, try the technology, but, you know, don't turn it into something it isn't, et cetera. Uh, so, and I all, I just realized ultimately I have to take a break. Uh, and so I go to the bookstore and I'm looking for something that I wouldn't normally read. I haven't read novels for a couple of years, seriously, like maybe once or twice I'd read a novel, but I used to read novels almost exclusively. And uh, I've just been reading nonfiction philosophy as white as stuff on and on and on. And I, I, I just, find myself grabbing this Michael Connolly book off the shelf called The Poet. And it just resonates with me. So I read it and then I'm back at the bookstore and now I've got like almost every Michael Connolly book and something's gestating inside of me. And I think, oh, I'm going to write this detective story. So I write this story called The Author. And it's like weird David Lynch stuff about like this detective who splits into different people and he's not sure if he is the killer or he isn't, or is there even, uh, it's just weird. There's zebras in it, like all kinds of dumb stuff. <laughs> and I write it by hand because I'm taking a break and uh, away from computers, all this sort of stuff. And then I cut, get to start typing it. And uh, I'm just, I'm not going to retype this whatever it is i'm like twenty thousand words in and i just like this is so stupid like uh david lynch is gonna laugh at me but anyway <laughs> i uh suddenly get this idea oh my god what if there was a detective who needed to learn memory techniques to save his career and then i thought Oh, and what if I you, you like actually wrote a, wrote it straight, just like I had said that I would do. I vowed that I would do. I even had this thing called the Iron Triangle with some of my poetry friends, where we all vowed we're not going to criticize any authors, etc. We're just going to do our best to do good work and so forth. So I all these memories came back of this theory of craft that I had and so forth. And then I had worked as a story consultant for a while after or during being a film studies professor and so forth. So I knew the hero's journey inside and out. And I just thought, can I actually hold myself to it? No zebras spontaneously appearing, et cetera. But can I also do philosophy at the same time? And can I create the alternative to the memory competitions or an alternative, better said? And the answer was yes. Kind of convoluted because <laughs> like making a novel and a game at the same time um, has has been interesting and challenging, but I did it. And uh, uh, it's just early days, but that's the like the origin story of the novel. And so it is a, a, an act of constraint. Can I write a hero's journey, literally hit the visit to the underworld where it typically happens in a story? Can I have the gathering of allies? Can I have the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, like all that stuff? Uh, can I have the self-revelation? 
after the battle, like everything. And as, as tickety-boo as possible in the chemistry of of the pot boiler, let's say. And, uh, you know, I, I think I got pretty close. I had to rewrite it four times to to hit those points. And I still think it's a bit overwritten. But anyway, um, whatever. Uh, that's the that, that's sort of the story. And also, can I make it that the memory instruction, so to speak, is not tedious and boring, where there's these asides where he's like, well, okay, I've got to come up with an image to memorize this person's name and so forth. Uh, and the other thing that also is that I wanted it to be true to what you could actually do as a person new to memory techniques. Those were the, the, the sort of rules. And it's also somewhat based on Nick Castle, who is a person who went through my training. He was a cop. He had PTSD and uh, he, he felt great solace and relief from using memory techniques, which the research uh, that Tim Doglish has done uh, has shown precisely that people with PTSD and depression, I've experienced it, um, have relief from this kind of mental activity. So yeah, that's the, what was, what was going on. And, it, and it, it's connected to this game called memory detective, which is, it's like live action dungeons and dragons with no dice. We use memory techniques instead of dice. And I'll tell you, I, it, even though it's a, a small start, it's not actually that small, but um, very modest start, but I saw joy on the faces of people who never in a million years would go to a memory competition. And I cooked it up in such a way that you can get memory exercise, like passive memory exercise, even without using the memory techniques, just to try to follow the plot <laughs> is going to exercise your memory. Anyway, people liked it. And, uh, now it's just doing more of it, iterating more versions of, of the, the stories and, and the games. That's fascinating. We were talking earlier about the release of Flyboy, and I I said it uh, it was published, and you said, well... And so <laughs> I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you've approached the release of it, um, or the publication of it, however, whatever we'd want to say there. Yeah, well, it's one of those crazy stories uh, that maybe one day will be told uh, in, in depth, but I don't know what this is. I still don't quite know what it is, and... You know, they say in business that if you're not embarrassed by your first project, you you waited too long or your first product. Um, and so I had that in mind and I was like, this isn't ready, but we've got to ship it. Anyway, we got to see like if this is, is a thing because I'm perfectly happy to have written this thing just purely to have written it because uh, I'm a graphomaniac. But um, <laughs> the, the the other thing is that uh, I wanted to to see like, Will will this be something for people, and will will they interact with it? And so I just did a limited release where you can only get it through me. Set up all the architecture where uh, you get the audiobook or the ebook. But if you wanted, you could add like add a a limited edition print that came with puzzles. So the puzzles, and I I wrote puzzles into it. Uh, like, for example, there's there's a puzzle. What does the detective get wrong about Tesla? And what does that say about his memory? You know, that sort of thing. Because there's, there's mistakes in, in the book. But it, surely there are mistakes that I've made, but there's mistakes I purposely made. Um, so, you know, you'd be like fact-checking it. Well, that's, that's a puzzle uh, to be solved. Uh, just to make it more interactive and, and as a special launch kind of thingamajigger. And um, no one has solved all the puzzles, and <laughs> no doubt, because some of them are so obscure that uh, I, I, I just don't know how, how anybody would solve them. But that's part of the fun, right? Uh, there is a legit answer. But um, I don't know. Do you know Kane's Jawbone? No. Kane's Jawbone was maybe the 1920s, uh, a novel where it has so many puzzles built into it, and it's also written out of order. People take the book apart. To this day, they take the book apart, they put it up on their walls, they try to assemble it in such a way as to solve what's going on there. So I had part of that in mind with this this like bonus edition. But where we go from here, I'm not exactly sure. But I I have the whole the whole series in mind. So I've written most of part eight, which is the grand finale. And the the key to part eight is already in part one. So there's stuff in part one 
And there's like themes, the philosophical themes of oneness, the themes of recursion. And so part eight is going to be all recursion based. Um, Anyway, I don't know if I'm going to pull it off. I don't even know if I'm a good enough writer to like pull off my own idea. But progressively, the detective gets more and more like the mental image that people have of Giordano Bruno as this super enlightened dude, so enlightened that when they sentenced him to death, he tells the Inquisition, you're more afraid of this uh, assessment than I am. <laughs> that kind of, that, that kind of, uh, I'm not going to end it that way, but you know, um, just that total shining image of enlightenment where he's just completely non-dual. There is no separation between him and others. And he has to exercise his memory to get that that way. Um, but then I realized that the thing that I never liked in Sherlock Holmes is that, or sorry, the like the series, is that they they made it a series that has progression. So then I thought, oh, well, I'll start to write some stories that are like non-progression, but I can't stop myself from having like a progressive element in it. Anyway, it's all all I don't know. I don't want to turn it into shambles and crap. So maybe it will just end with Flyboy and that's it. Um, but I've written so much of many of the the installments. Uh and then I've finished now a story called Conjuring Confessions, where the detective learns to memorize a deck of cards, and that helps him figure out a, a, a crime. And there's another one that I'm almost done called Undertaking Overwhelm, where he learns to to build a mnemonic calendar so he can memorize the dates of when things happened. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But in some sense, I feel like I have to be guided by the people that I'm writing it for. So I'm just going to dribble it out. Uh, so to speak, get more feedback and see like, cause I almost have no fulfillment. I mean, I have fulfillment if it's just for me, that's great. The, the, the graphomaniac uh, gets his, his lunch, but um, it's even more fulfilling when I get these emails from people and they're like, what does Jerome mean when he said <laughs> this or um, uh, the detective used this to help him memorize, you know, Iceman or whatever, but couldn't I use this image to me? That's, that's the success when there's cooking up alternative mnemonics that they could use because that's ultimately that's what Bruno, I believe, did. I don't know for sure. I can't I can't talk to the guy. But one thing I realized as I was working on this, because I didn't even know this, I didn't read any of Bruno's plays, but I started to read his plays and I was just like, dude, why did you make your memory training so hard to understand in his plays? He just has his characters say, and then we use the art of memory and we take a memory valve and it's the most clear, crisp, concise, easy to follow teaching of the memory technique that you could ever, uh, ever hope to find. So, yeah, I, I just think that the uh, pedagogical outcomes, it's certainly not new to teach through stories, but uh, I wonder if I can put the gas on it and like literally go to town with like ads and all this sort of stuff and... Uh, and have novels and games where people are are actually having joy from using memory techniques and not feeling excluded, which is not to have some kind of um, inclusivity agenda or whatever, but it, it is kind of uh, a missing thing that people who are only super nerdy about these techniques for memorizing pi or randomized numbers for memorizing playing cards for memorizing words that they're going to forget after the competition. That's so exclusive. Like what can we do to like, to keep these memory techniques alive that, and, you know, choosing the detective genre also uh, unattracts as many people as it attracts. But the kind of cool thing here is if I get some help, I could get people writing stories or I could write stories uh, that are in sci-fi in in romance in uh westerns like all kinds of stuff um it'd be kind of corny uh, but you know we'll see where it goes <laughs> uh, i i i could also see it being really bad by having some sort of you know uh taste monger saying oh no no we can't have westerns you couldn't possibly have people using memory techniques that uh that are spitting uh chewing tobacco on on the saloon floor i mean now that i say that that sounds pretty cool but if it it, you know if it's done if it's done well if it's done yeah even if it's done poorly who cares i mean it's just uh do people will people engage with it well will it will it get them 
to use their memory? That's that's the that's the real question. And so far, so good. It's it's a fascinating effort, I must say. And you recorded the audiobook also, thirteen hours plus, I think, when I when I looked at it. What, what was that? Yeah, like? it's one of those things where in in memory. There, as we were talking about, there's too many words to tell the truth of it, uh, to 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 get at to get at it. But I almost gave up many times. Uh, I wasn't. I, I was having a, a a bit of a problem with my mouth, um, with some angular chylitis, so it hurt to talk. But I just had to get it done, and I'm glad that I did, and I'm glad that I did it. I I, I auditioned a few actors. I had an actor who totally, it was like he knew this character. Uh, I could probably dig up the uh, the recording of the sample. Like he really sounded like what I thought Williams was like. Uh, but he said, he said he read deeper into it and he was like, this project just isn't for me. And oh, I was just like, oh, damn. Because if he had, if he would have taken it, I would have been... I think his whole narration would have been a, a thousand times better than mine, but I'm still glad that I did it because at least it sets sort of the model of what I think this character is like. And, you know, I was able to, to, to act a, a little bit, but I, I, I don't have enough self-reflective skills in what acting is. I mean, people like Clint Eastwood who act, who direct themselves and so forth, that just amazes me. It amazes me. Well, that's that idea of multiple mentality. You're managing the script. You're managing the set. You're managing your appearance of yourself on the set, in a set, in a screen, in a screen that appears in multiple possible configurations, thinking of what you need in the editing room. You know, like that's just wild to me. But that's kind of like part of the kick of doing the audiobook myself in some sense or even producing it, like listening to another person. It's just a variation of that, except for it's not myself. But yeah, it took way more than 13 hours. And um, because I had this mouth problem, uh, I had a lot of false takes. And I had to ultimately, the first person I hired to do the editing, they bounced. They were just like, "This is you have too many takes and it's just going to take too long. And they, or they actually reneged on their, their, um, proposed contract and they then amped it up by i don't know oodles of thousands of dollars to to do this and i was just like i'll find somebody else sorry and i found another person and i just explained to him look I, my lips were cracking and plus i was making changes to the manuscript and you there's like literally 15 minutes of clack 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 and then <laughs> drinking water and then <laughs> like warming up my tongue <laughs> and he he was a soldier and went to town and he got it done uh so he gets the gig for the editing next time for sure. Uh, but it was a labor of the love of experimentation in some sense, almost more than anything else is just like, get this done so that we can be embarrassed by the first version or, or not be embarrassed at all, be super proud. And I don't know yet what, what to, what to feel, but so far. Yeah. I, I the feedback has been, has been quite nice. I, I don't know if you've seen any of the, the videos that people have sent, but there's like this video where a guy just like flips the book and he's just like, Bye, boy. <laughs> uh, they're happy with it, so that's that's cool. Yes, I, I must say your execution is is very admirable. I admire it a great deal. How can people get a hold of Flyboy? What's the best way to do that? How how would how would you suggest people engage with this this multifaceted venture? Well, the easiest thing is if you search on my website, uh, probably just on Google, you'll find a place which I think is magneticmarymethod.com forward slash fb sq. And those are special codes for me. Uh, but what it'll do is it'll ask you to uh, give your email address to access a sample from the book. And then you can order the book from that page. And then uh, all of this isn't refined yet. But, you know, I'm thinking almost I, I, I feel like I, I've never wanted to do a Kickstarter, but I almost feel like this is the kind of thing to do a Kickstarter for and just explain to people, look, I have this idea and I, it would be cool if it happened sooner than later. And me being a solo authorpreneur or whatever the heck I am, just like doing this without help is just a measure of insanity like never before. And not that I have done it without help. I mean, I've had people 
do the layout and edit the audiobook as I just said and so forth but to really like get some some horsepower behind it but then again I don't know what I'm asking for but anyway that's the way that's that's the way you find it now uh you can search it and then I was gonna do uh like a another sort of promotion for for valentine's day because there is a love story in it of sorts uh but then it just went a different direction but i'll do it as soon as i have the next game ready i'll do another promotion of it and the next game is called the doomsday dictionary and it has to do with uh dictionaries and you know we're going to memorize vocabulary as we're solving a crime and so that's the plan right now is every time i have a game i will launch or I'm, if uh, I have some people reading Conjuring uh, Confessions right now, and if they say, yeah, this is cool, I don't know, really, because memorizing playing cards while you're trying to solve a crime, I mean, it just seems so outlandish. But if they like it, and uh, it sort of makes sense. Oh, and he's also learning about the difference between extension and intention and philosophy at the same time, which, which kind of makes sense, because if you know what those principles are, they relate to decks of cards. Um, so. I don't know. Uh, I'll see. And, and then maybe I'll make the audiobook version. Um, and then so launch a story and then you can like add on the original Flyboy. It's just an experiment to to do like independent book publishing and um, and just try to build a thing that's for the people that it's for and not not necessarily. It's almost like to repress my own fantasy, uh, not to repress it, but but to be on, on point, you know, because the other way of doing it is just do it on Amazon and then have people confused and just get a bunch of one-star reviews because they're like, why is this detective um, pausing to <laughs> to think about how he's going to memorize stuff, you know? Uh, <laughs> like You could just see the train wreck that would happen. And plus, Amazon, I looked, it doesn't, it doesn't have a category of, you know, uh, detective fiction study guides. <laughs> So, so uh, it just seems like it's almost that moral compass thing. Like, why put a thing in a place that doesn't quite fit? Uh, so forgive me if this all sounds hurdy-gurdy and how to find it, but that's the way to find it. Uh, just search my site or uh, go to that. I think that link that I mentioned is, is uh, correct. And there'll just be more stuff because I want to, I want to do more story stuff, but as a supplement to traditional courses in memory training, not uh, a replacement, uh, because I still see traditional courses as being as profound as they have been since the Lyceum. Uh, although I'm sure there are schools older than the Lyceum. Yes, and I'll include, of course, all the relevant links in the show notes below. Yeah, well, this, this has been great. I wonder, if, do you have any final reflections or anything you'd like to say as we bring this podcast to an end? Oh, I would just say whatever you do in, in, in the world of the things that you do, try to have fun with it and experiment. I think the, the biggest lessons that I've learned both from the, 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 the teachers and uh, like of, of meditation and so forth and the philosophers, the, the common thread that I see between them is to experiment. And I think that that's, uh, that's the ultimate mental model. That's the, I mean, is there a deity of experimentation? I don't know. But if there is, that, that would be maybe a cool one to, to reflect on. Uh, but exper that's the cool thing, is experimentation is itself just what it is. And it's so powerful just to reflect on, on that notion. So yeah, if, if, I, if I can end on a deepity, then that would be an experiment. <laughs> Anthony Mativier, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.